Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers. On this episode, I talked to Roger Ross Williams. He was the first African-American director to ever win an Oscar for his short film, Music by Prudence, in 2010. You may remember his acceptance speech when he was Kanye'd by his producer who interrupted him. We'll talk more about that later. He went on to make God Loves Uganda about American evangelicals stirring up homophobia in Africa. His new film is Life Animated, looking at a family learning to communicate with their autistic son through the dialogue of Disney movies. Life Animated has been winning acclaim at film festivals. I sat down with Roger during his stop at the Montclair Film Festival in April and conducted this interview in my New Jersey basement. Roger started his career working in network news. I asked him how he made the transition to documentaries. So I was working for network news and I hated my job. What what do you think it was going to be like when you went into it? I thought we would actually be doing stories that mattered. You know, I thought journalism was still alive and journalism is pretty much dead, especially in the mainstream media. And I was really disappointed. And So this is when did you have this job or these jobs? Pretty much. I, I graduated from NYU and I've spent pretty much about like 15 years like working in network news. And there was a point where CNN had this, I was working for CNN and they decided that I was, a, I had this sort of filmmaker instinct. So they would send me out to make these little films. And I remember I made a little film where I was following George W. Bush as he was campaigning for the primary in South Carolina. And I made this little verite film that was, that was, that they loved. But then I got a call from the president of CNN and he said, it's too, makes George W. Bush look too bad. And CNN is already accused of being liberal media and wow. I'm friends with the Clintons. You have to tone it down. I was like, but that's, you know, he did scream. He would scream at reporters and he would be rude. So I had to, and I was like, why am I doing this? I'm being censored and I wanted freedom. So I got a job working for um, the Sundance Channel covering the Sundance Film Festival. Uh-huh. And I bet I'm, that was a drop in pay. It was a big drop in pay, but I got to interview directors who were in competition. And I was like, someday I'm going to be on the other side of this camera. Someday I'm going to do that. And so how did you make that happen? What, when did you make a choice to take a step towards that? Well, it was with Music by Prudence. I quit my job at CNN. I had heard about Prudence. I, I knew I wanted to do something in Africa for some reason. I just, mm. I just was drawn to Africa. I'd never been to Africa. Mm. And I basically took like $5,000 of my own money, got some, some equipment loaned to me from a Maryland Institute College of Art. Mm. Um, and, uh, and they even gave me an intern and paid for him to come with me. And I went to Zimbabwe and started filming with Prudence. And then the first day I started filming, I knew... I just, for me, I I just knew it was something special and I knew it was an amazing story. And I was like, I remember thinking when I came back from interviewing Prudence the first day, I thought, this is the greatest story of my life. It's this amazing story. And it was, she was so fresh and real and and honest and no one had ever allowed her to speak. You know, no one had ever talked to her and tell her story. And I was- So just for people who haven't seen Music by Prudence, describe who Prudence is. 
Prudence um, Mabena is a severely disabled girl from Zimbabwe. And in Zimbabwe, disability is considered witchcraft. So she was rejected by her family, by society, by the community, and her mother abandoned her with her grandmother because women carry the the curse of... of, So if you have a disabled Mm -hmm. child, it's the woman's fault. And her grandmother sort of took care of her for a little while and taught her to sing, but then couldn't take care of her anymore and took her to her father, her father, who had left her mother and was remarried with kids, his, her stepmother just threw her under a tree. She, didn't, she doesn't have arms or legs, so she can't move. She lived in her own feces. She didn't think she was human. She thought she was an animal, and she lived with the animals, and she ate off the ground like the, with the dogs. And she was rescued by a school that rescues disabled kids like this, and they put her, cleaned her up, put her in a wheelchair, and they heard this amazing sound coming from her. And they realized she had this. She could. It was her singing, mm. and she has this incredible, not just singing voice, but a musical ability. She formed a band, and she won a tour of Northern Europe. The band won a competition in, in Africa, and I heard about her, and I, you know, went over and. How, how did you hear about her? A friend of mine had told me about her because she had already, they had won the competition and they're like, there's this amazing singer in Zimbabwe. And so I wrote to the school and they sent me a, a little, I remember it was, I got in the mail, a mini DV tape and it was an interview with Prudence that they had shot at the school and her singing. And I was watching it and I started to cry because it was, her voice is so beautiful. And I don't know, it was something about her and I just made arrangements to go to the school. I just, I think within weeks I was on a plane to Zimbabwe. Here is Prudence Mabena singing in Music by Prudence. And so I can fast forward here. You complete the short film. It gets nominated for an Oscar. And I want to ask you more about that story, but it's kind of set up to that. Somewhere you had a collaborator on the film, Eleanor Burkett, who comes up later in the story. So who was she? Eleanor was a neighbor of mine upstate, or is, she still is. So she was the one who told me about Prudence. And and then I wrote to the school and I got that tape. And then I went to Eleanor. Eleanor was a journalist. She's a writer. And I went to her and I said, since she was teaching at the, she was in the Fulbright program teaching at the University of Zimbabwe. And I said, why don't you produce the film? And I asked her because... It's illegal to, at that time, it was, journalism was officially illegal. So you couldn't bring a camera into Zimbabwe Mm. and you couldn't shoot in Zimbabwe. And and I said, the only way I could do it is if we, is if I go as a teach, like as a, you know, sort of to teach at the university and I was doing a program and she, and, um, and she's like, well, I don't know. I've never produced anything. I don't know how to do that. And I didn't know her very well. And um, that's how we got the cameras into the country the first time. Is going as uh, as teachers. Yes, we've I mean that we first time that was how we got the cameras in the country. The second time we actually snuck them in under the wheelchair. We drove through the border and we put the equipment under the wheelchairs of the kids because 
the when you cross into the country, they wouldn't search a truck full of disabled children because they're afraid. Because if you touch a disabled child, you will have a disabled child. So they just w- waved us through. So it's the 2010 Oscars. You are Poise, if you win for Best Short Documentary, you'd be the first black director to ever win an Oscar in any category. Other black actors, uh, maybe other roles uh, have won before, but never a, a black director. So it's kind of a big deal. And something memorable happens if anyone watched the 2010 Oscars. Can you describe from your perspective what went down? Well, Eleanor and I had parted ways sort of before we went into post-production, sort of the edit. And... It's so overwhelming, the Academy, when, you, when you're sort of – the whole process from the minute you're nominated, sort of the excitement. But that, the, that week and that day is really overwhelming. Everyone kept coming up to me, including HBO, including um, Sheila Evans, the, the head of HBO Documentary Films, was like, was like you're going to win. You're going to win. People are saying you're going to win. And I was – and I – started to but you you, know, you don't want to completely believe it i started to believe it so when they called my name it was it's very out of body experience and i remember running to the stage literally running to stage and high-fiving people like i was on the winning like on the prices right or something like high-fiving people as i went down there like jumping like a little kid it was very embarrassing and then boom eleanor came up out of nowhere and sort of stole the speech and i remember i stood there i was you're she aired that she had a disagreement with you she she yes well she she said um let the woman speak was her the first line she said um, isn't it just like a man to not let a woman speak and um and then she spoke and uh, i was just sort of stood there smiling realizing that there are lots of people watching and then i at the end i said um this is for prudence. It's the only thing I got in, and and I had planned with the with the um, producers of the Oscars to have prudence. Prudence was in the audience, and to have a camera ready and on her in case we mm. wanted to cut to her. Mm. And then I was in shock, pretty much, for after that happened, for and you know, sort of for a while. And I didn't really realize how big it was, how how much of a media story it was, and um, really until I think it was around six or seven in the morning, I got a call from. Ryan Seacrest's producer saying, we want you to come on E! And then the phone did not stop ringing. It was crazy. And then I couldn't even walk out of the hotel. I remember I had a meeting that day at CAA, and I couldn't walk out of the hotel because there were paparazzi all waiting for me in front of the hotel. Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't think that's ever happened to a short documentary winner before. (laughs) It certainly put me on the map. And that night, David Letterman reenacted that moment in his monologue John Stewart did a whole monologue about it. It was on the, they talked about it on The View, on the Today Show. It was the big story in that news cycle. And the greatest, to me, the greatest honor is that The Simpsons did a whole episode about it. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know that. (laughs) So that is a wild experience. Like, at one point, you're one thing. 24 hours later, you're you're known for this weird media fluke. How did you take that on board in your life? Um, you know, I embraced it, and I said, "While people know who I am, I need to get a you know another film off the ground quickly." I, it's funny because I met, so I was I was invited to a lot of things like 
retreats and and I actually made a little video of that whole night and the whole moment my 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 um partner who's not my husband at the time Casper made a whole video that we put on our website cuz we were getting like crazy amounts of traffic on our website <laughs> but I was at a retreat not too long after that I was in a sort of a I don't know if you call it like a trust circle. Um, like we broke down into groups and we had to sort of say what we feared and what we hoped for and all this kind of stuff. And um, in my trust circle was Kara Mertes. And she came, she said to me, I was at the Oscars that night and I saw what happened to you and you were so composed. And, um, you know, what are you working on next? So I said... Kara Mertes, who at the time was head of the Sundance Institute documentary uh, program. So, so someone I, who can really help a filmmaker get a film going. Yes. So I said, I'm thinking of... I want to do something in Africa with LGBT. I don't know. Um, she's like, oh, that sounds great. We have an, um, uh, this new this grant, the Center Reach Sundance emergency grant for you know store. And I we, I told her about Uganda, what was going on with law in Uganda, and she and I got like, I a few weeks later I got a email from Sundance saying you got this emergency grant, so I can make my first trip to Uganda. You said something a little while ago that you you were fascinated by Africa. Before you went to Zimbabwe to make music by Prudence, you'd never been to Africa, but you were fascinated by Africa. And I wanted to dig a little deeper into that. What made you fascinated by Africa? Um, you know, I felt that all, a lot of the, the, the documentaries and the stories I was seeing coming out of Africa was from – were by non-African filmmakers. And – my family's a Gullah family, and the Gullahs are from South Carolina. And the Gullah people are the most sort of African-Americans connected to Africa because they still have a lot of the traditions that they bought from them. So I, I grew up in Philadelphia, but um, we, I would spend my summers in South Carolina and very immersed in the Gullah culture. So I was always had that strong connection to, to the continent. But I would see... F- Films coming out of Africa, I mean, coming out of films about Africa that were not even, of course, definitely not made by Africans, but not even made by African Americans. Mm. And I wanted to find that connection between Africa and African Americans. I felt a connection and I wanted to see if, if there would, if that would translate into my film, if there would be some sort of deeper understanding, if it wasn't just about gawking at African poverty or or violence and that it was an uplifting film from Africa and that it was about an African who took control of their own situation and pulled themselves up out of um, a very bad situation and sort of shine. I thought Prudence's story was inspiring and not depressing. So you go off to make what becomes God Loves Uganda and can you summarize what God Loves Uganda is about? God Loves Uganda is about American evangelicals' influence in Uganda as, um, over the anti-homosexuality bill, which was a p- bill that was proposed at the time that was a death penalty for the LGBT community. That's in my Uganda. Hanging, in yeah. Uganda, yeah. And you uh, wind up focusing a lot on the American missionaries uh, who who go to Uganda and are proselytizing there and who uh, wound up having a big force on the politics and the kind of anti-gay politics 
um, in, in the country. Uh, I've heard you describe that part of your fascination with this is that you came from a religious family your, yourself. Can you elaborate, you know, what drew you to that part of the story as opposed to, you know, focusing on the gay activists in, in Uganda? So I grew up in a family of preachers. My father is a preacher and um, my uncle, the, fam- the the biggest church in the town I grew up in, in Pennsylvania, was my um, a member of my family. And uh, so, um, but I was never accepted because they were, it was a non-affirming church and um, I was never accepted by definitely by my father, but also by the, the that community, that religious community. So, being a gay man, this was something was really personal to me. Is that is the now idea for you? Of, was it was that a conflict that took place when you were a kid or an adult? It was. It started when I was a kid, and I think um, as an adult, I. At one point, um, when I was working in television, I made a short for PBS going to sort of confront my father and the religious black community about being gay and, and who I am. And it's like, it was a painful experience. But that's something that I've always been thinking about and wanting to explore. I still think want to explore that. And I think that when you make documentaries, it needs, for me, it has to be personal and you have to be and I think for for anyone it ha- you have to be passionate about it or you're not going to make it through I mean, it's just it's just too hard <laughs> yeah <laughs> did um did you ever gain any closure in your own personal experience trying to bring this up when I made the so when I made the short the film for PBS it was really like a sort of a television segment and a, and a half hour show an hour show we were doing that was out of out of Nightline at ABC, but we were producing it for PBS. It's because that's where I met Ron Susskind. But uh-huh, uh, okay. he's the one who actually c- convinced me to make this sh- this short. So it was called Family Secrets, and I go back and I um, find my biological father, who was the head deacon of the church, who had an affair with my mother, and I was the 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 secret love child of them. Um, my mother was married, and he was married. So. I didn't get closure on that because I, you know, in a way I was using that, that film as, I thought I was using that film as therapy and it didn't work. It was, <laughs> it was, it was just a lot of pain and um, no closure. And so I, I, you know, I needed to confront the faith community that, that I came from. And I think I didn't get closure on it until God Loves Uganda. Because God Loves Uganda to me um, was transformative experience because I hadn't, I hadn't to, Uganda's like um, my church on steroids. It's like people have deep, deep, deep religious fever. It's crazy. Everything reminded me of where I came from. The speaking in tongues, the 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 just the the, the passion and the way everyone, but also the hypocrisy of it all, also reminded me of the community I came from. You know, my mother had an affair with the head of the church, and that's what I was. So the hypocrisy of it all. It's also the country that is Google ranked it number one in googling gay porn. So it's the country has the highest alcohol rate in the world alcoholism in the world it's so but it's this deeply religious country it also has more uh it has this whole tabloid press with lots of you know naked women and and has a whole night big nightclub scene it's just like all these contradictions it's the most religious place but like it's texas also, it's like texas exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's the yes it's the, 
when you're making God Loves Uganda, I read that at some point you were identified as a gay man at a particularly heated moment uh, in Uganda when, you know, that could be a death sentence. Uh, there was a well-known activist, David Cato, who had been murdered. And and so you left, you got out, you went back to the edit room, and then you realized you had to go back. Yeah. Uh, what was that experience like? Well, I had become so obsessed with following these these American, these white American evangelicals in Uganda and in Kansas City. Um, it was it's a place called the International House of Prayer, a mega church. IHOP. IHOP. Yes. Although they lost the lawsuit against IHOP, the Pancake House, oh, so now they have to call themselves IHOP KC. So I became obsessed with them, and I really cut a film. My rough cut, my first rough cut, was really all about them, and it was so intense and filled with so much hatred, really, that I I was lucky enough to go to the Sundance Edit Lab with the project, and my first screening at the Sundance Edit Lab, James Longley. Um, who was James another, Longley, who made uh, Rock and Fragments, um, nominated for Academy Award. Who said... This is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And that's the class. And that was like a bell went off. I was like, oh my God, this is a horror film. But it was such a, t- a hard cinematic assault. And they were, you know, editors were like, the, the, the advisors who are amazing at the Sundance Edit Lab were like, it's, we can't watch this film. It's too, makes it too angry. It's too, so I was like, I have to put in the other side. There, there were, and that that point, there was only really one lone bishop in Uganda who was fighting against that that sort of way of thinking about religion. That it was, you know, ex- about exclusion, and he was including everyone. And he was, and that was Bishop Christopher Sinyanja. So, I went back. I realized I had to go back. I didn't want to go back. I had this, but I did go back. I had. Julie Goldman, my producer, is like you got you gotta have really good security. I had great security. I was and I, I followed followed Bishop Christopher, um, and um, and by adding Bishop Christopher, and then there was another. There was um, Reverend Capia Kayoma, and he was a um, a Reverend. Um, he's based in Boston, but he was doing religious research, and he's the one who did the research on the. Christian right in America and how they're invading Uganda and other African countries. And he wrote a paper on that because he works for um, a research organization called Political Research Associates. So I added both of them in the film as an alternative voice. And, and Kapia Kayoma became the sort of, sort of narrator who sort of takes you through the journey because he had been there and had to flee with his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and when I did that, it gave... The, it gave the viewer some, you know, someone to identify with and just not be sort of, you know, freaked out the whole time. So you said that <clears throat> Making God Loves Uganda finally gave you some closure on your own experiences with the evangelical church. How was that? It was, you know, it was great because I I realized how um, irrational and how insane certain ultra-conservative evangelicals are and that it wasn't... I I sort of got rid of that stuff from my childhood, those feelings of rejection. I sort of was, you know, I realized, you know, it wasn't me. It was was their problem. It wasn't Hmm. my problem Hmm. anymore. 
We'll be back in a minute with more from Roger Ross Williams as he discusses his new film, Life Animated. But first, a word from our sponsor. Pure Nonfiction is brought to you by Sundance Now Doc Club. Watch hundreds of documentaries selected by head curator Tom Powers. Now on Doc Club, you can see The Horse Boy, about parents of an autistic boy who travel from Texas to Mongolia seeking help for their son. You can watch Sundance Now Doc Club on your TV, computer, or mobile device. Go to docclub.com to sign up for a free trial. Roger Ross Williams got the idea for his new film, Life Animated, from the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Ron Suskind. His son Owen Suskind, at age three, was diagnosed as autistic and stopped talking. But Owen loved Disney cartoons. One day, Ron used a puppet of the Disney character Yago, who's a sidekick in the movie Aladdin, and had a breakthrough with Owen. Ron and Owen described that moment in the film. And Owen turns to the puppet like he's bumping into an old friend. I say to him, Owen, Owen, how does it feel to be you? And I said, not good, because I don't have any friends. Now I'm under the bedspread, and I just bite down hard. You know, I just say to myself, stay in character. And I say, okay, okay. Owen, when did you and I become such good friends? And he said, when I watched Aladdin, you made me laugh. And then we talk. Owen and Yago, for a minute, minute and a half. It's the first conversation we've ever had. Life Animated feels like a departure from Roger's earlier work. Stylistically, he combines home video and contemporary footage of Owen as an adult, mixed with Disney clips and new animation. I asked Roger how he went from making two films about Africa to focusing on a story of a suburban American family. For me, it was really important not to get sort of pigeonholed into being making only a specific type of film. And what had what was happening is I was getting offered um, anytime someone had some film project in Africa, they would come to me. <laughs> oh, you know, same thing. Like if you know, it's either if if you're if you're African American, if you're black they come to you with black projects like mm-hmm. you you're you can only you only a black person can make this film um or only a, you know you, you Roger's the expert on Africa so i didn't want that one thing um i had a long term i knew Ron Suskind for 15 years um and when he first approached me um about uh life animated um you know i was you know i didn't quite get it and there was one moment I remember I was screening did he approach you with the idea of making a film with the idea of making a film pretty like sort of early early in the process when he was writing the book mm-hmm. but then he was he um I was I was screening God Loves Uganda in Boston and he I met him for breakfast and he said you know I'm almost I'm close to almost finishing this book and he ex- described Disney Club to me and um something clicked and I was like, 
this is it. This is my next film. I don't know. It just clicked, and I was, and um, it's because. So, what is that Disney Club for people who haven't seen Life Animated? Disney Club is uh, so Owen Suskind, um, the son of Ron Suskind. Yeah. So he um, I he, he lost his ability at three years old to speak and connect with anyone, and he watched endless Disney animated films for years and years and years. And his first words he uttered was from The Little Mermaid was just your voice and um the his family realized that they could that he was actually absorbing the movies but not only absorbing the movies but but actually learning about life through the films and they became disney animated characters to connect with their son and they could have sort of drew him out of the autism and um so owen who is an expert on everything. He's he's memorized every line of dialogue from every classic Disney film ever made. He learned to read by reading the credits. Um, he can tell you. You can say a name of a, of an actor, a voiceover actor, and he. Uh, 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 and he will will tell you all the other films they've been in. I mean, he'll give you their resume. Um, so he started a Disney club in his school, and the school is a school for. Um, uh, kids, it's like kind of college for um, uh, not just um, people living with autism, but people who struggle with diff- various learning disabilities and learning challenges. And they um, and this club became really popular. Mm. And they would watch a scene and then they would discuss it. And 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 they just saw so much more in these films. And it was like, and for me, it was really about. Um, I think it's about that sort of the power of sort of fables and story these sort of disney films are classic stories with classic themes and um and they really embrace that and they use that in their own lives um so he, ron was sort of telling me about this and um and i was and i for me i've what's always attracted me as a filmmaker were you know left behind people who've been left behind mm. music by prudence left behind you know the god even god loves uganda is about people who were left behind um even though i'm focused on the other side mm-hmm. the, the people who are you know, um and so it was sort of a natural fit for me to to tell um the story of owen but it was important for me to tell it from Owen's point of view, from Owen's perspective, and to go to, to try to get into Owen's head and see the world through Owen's eyes. Um, and that was what was really exciting for me. Yeah, you know, there's a whole um, set of interesting challenges here. Uh, you're looking at material that's based on a book, but the, the book that, um, I haven't read the book, but I take it that the kind of key dramatic points of the book have already happened. There are things that were happening when Owen was growing up. Now Owen uh, is an adult. How, how old was he when you first started working on this? 23. You know, so I think it's always a challenge for a documentary filmmaker to tell a story that's already happened. How do you uh, evoke the, the drama uh, of that when, when it's already happened? And then what you do in um, in your film Life Animated is also tell a contemporary story of what's happening with Owen. Early on, you know, I, um, it was, so even before, I think it was either, either shortly after I started shooting or before I signed on an editor, um, David Teague, who's a brilliant editor. And, um, you know, we, 
we would have a lot of conversations about the challenges about just a whole film that happens in the past and the backstory. And, um, and we, but what I realized is that Owen was going through this very transformative year in his life. He was about to graduate from school, move into his own apartment. He had fallen in love, everything that's universal that everyone goes through. Right. So, so we interwove his, his sort of, his sort of move to, to be independent um, with the backstory um, and in sort of the first part of the film. So and we didn't even do that much backstory. We just hit the sort of big, um, big moments in, in the backstory. The first time he spoke, the, the first time he had a conversation with Ron, you know, when he was bullied at school. Um, and then... Um, certainly helps that Ron Suskind is a... Uh Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and knows how to tell a story himself. So he's uh, a great presence on camera. Ron is an amazing storyteller who gets paid a lot of money for his speeches <laughs> around, the, around the world. Um, uh, and we didn't want to, you know, one of the things we didn't want to do is lean too much on Ron and telling, you know, the story. And we wanted, and Cornelia, who is Owen's mother, is really the the, the sort of heart and... Um, of the movie because she is the most loving, caring mother who has done so much for Owen. And so every time I would interview Cornelia, she would be in tears, you know, and Ron is a professional. Like he's, so I'm like, Ron, you got to be more human. You can't be so, you know, this isn't, you got to, so I took him, actually when I interviewed Ron, I took him away to their house in um, New Hampshire, to their lake house, and I spent a few days with him, to, turned off from the world, so I could really, you know, get him to sort of turn off. So we weren't in, we weren't in on Harvard Square where he lives, or in his, you know, we were in away from everything, so he can really sort of relax and 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 not be in that sort of Ron mode, which Ron is a. Now, as you approach the story about an autistic man. What were what were your thoughts or ideas or understanding of autism coming into it? I didn't have much of an understanding of autism coming into it. I didn't, unlike a lot of people, I didn't know anyone with autism. Uh, I hadn't, I don't have any connections in my family. So I was a little uncomfortable at first. And um, so as, as I became more comfortable. The, and can you describe what made you uncomfortable? Well, you know, as an uh, Owen, because he's autistic, he's not, he doesn't, you know, he, talk, make eye contact or, or talk, to, you know, he, he talks to you, but it's like, you know, there's a, there's a, there's sort of this uh, disconnect and you don't know you're, you're, you I just didn't know how to you know how to how was I going to connect with him um, I you know it's just you're just awkward and so one of the things we did um, Owen spent his life watching a television screen and connecting to characters on on a television screen so I thought I should interview him using an interrotron. Mm -hmm. And an interrotron is a camera invented by Earl Morris that is behind a television screen. So you're filming someone through the screen and they're looking at the audience directly. 
Owen is looking at Roger's face on a TV screen, and behind that screen is a camera filming Owen. So that way, Owen can look me in the eyes and really connect. And it was, you know, and I didn't know if it would work. I was amazed by how he was so connected to me and he was so engaged and and I think it what I want my goal with that was for Owen to connect to the audience to also connect with Owen and that slowly over the course of the movie you will get deeper and deeper into Owen's head so that by the end when you're in what we call the the sidekick story which we can talk about you're in Owen's world mm-hmm. you're immersed in Owen's world now uh, you described before that one thing that happens in the course of, of your filming is is Owen falls in love and has a, uh, has a romance. And I won't give anything away, but it like anyone who's going through a romance, it's a vulnerable thing to film. And it made me wonder, you know, if you were if you're filming a non-autistic person going through a romance or going through something vulnerable, they might have a little bit more of agency to negotiate with the camera or to say, hey, don't film this or let me collect my thoughts. And Owen is a person who just puts it all out there. Ron is described as like a person who cannot tell a lie. So it when when you're watching him go through these vulnerable moments, you feel like you're experiencing something with your nerve endings directly exposed. And I wonder if thought process you went through in filming that with him, you you know, capturing those things on camera. Yeah, there were, you know, so there were times where um, I didn't know whether to film or not, but I let Cornelia and Ron sort of be my guide with that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they really, it was really important to them to show that People living with autism experience the same things, you know, maybe it's just the stakes are higher and they're more intense, but the same things that we all experience. And um, and so I um, and and yes, Owen has no bubble. There's like we all live in with a bubble around us that we use to protect ourselves and project and, and from uh, Owen doesn't have that bubble. He's just raw and exposed. And um I, both Ron and Cornelia and, and, and myself thought that it was important to show that, to show how Owen is, it's like, it's a joy to be around Owen because he doesn't have that bubble around himself, because he just says and expresses how he feels. And that's such a refreshing thing in, you know, in this world. <laughs> In the film, Ron talks about finding Owen's notebook filled with drawings of Disney sidekicks. Here's a clip with Owen explaining the book, followed by Ron's voice. At that point, I didn't feel like a hero. I felt like a sidekick. The sidekicks are fun-loving, comical, wacky, playful, friendly, and delightful. And they help the hero fulfill their destiny. And they support the heroes on the last two pages. In his scroll, I am the protector of the sidekicks. And the last thing he writes on the last page is no sidekick gets left behind. 
So there's two types of animation in the film. There's um, what we call the backstory animation, and those are sort of uh, line uh, drawings, like drawings in a sketchbook, like black and white line drawings. Um, and then there's the sidekicks, and that's this Owen creates when Owen um, Ron discovers one of Owen's sketchbooks, and he writes, "I'm the protector of sidekicks," and he realizes that in his sketchbook, Owen was only drawing sidekicks and never drawing heroes, and he relates to sidekicks, and he uses the sidekicks as his advise as his advisors in his life, and they are always with him. So when you're with Owen, and we, you see a lot of this in the film, Owen is always constantly self-talking, and what he's doing is he's doing dialogues from all these mm-hmm. Disney films. They're constantly going in his head. So there's this constant, you know, all these characters are all living inside him and all sort of talking to him. And um, I, in many ways, I, so I wanted to bring that to life. I wanted to bring the story of the sidekicks. Owen writes a story about this this little boy who at three years old, which is when Owen was struck with autism, um, gets lost in a in a in a terrible storm in a forest and wanders across this bridge and the bridge collapses and he's in the land of the lost sidekicks where all the sidekicks live because the heroes have fulfilled their destiny and they're without heroes and and and, and you know we many of us feel like sidekicks ourselves and I definitely feel like a sidekick so you know I totally it was about bringing that story to life and so I went to this amazing I love um 2D animation that the French are doing. Um, I think they're 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 sort of like doing the best 2D animation work. I wanted it to be very different from Disney, the mm. animation. So I went to Paris and worked with these amazing French animators and created um, bought Owen's story to life. So the story um, that we tell in the film in three parts. It's like a little animated film within a film. Is you know the story of the boy lost in the land of the lost sidekicks and then Owen creates these monsters and these monsters the one the one in the film is Fuzzbutch and Fuzzbutch is a monster that that makes you confused that breathes fire and fog into your head and makes you confused it's <laughs> autism and um they and he attacks the boy and his sidekicks and destroys them and and the boy has to find and and the boy has to find his strength to um and use everything he's learned to overcome the sort of challenges and face the world. And that's basically the story that we tell. Um, and Owen created that story. And so, you know, so our, our, what I wanted to do was, I think in the film, by the time you get to the first sidekick animation, you're ready to go deeper into Owen's head. So you've been, it comes about maybe close to a third of the way um, and you go into this world and the world is it's not the black and white backstory animations it's in vivid color and it's this world of fantasy and 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 it's immersive there's not there's very little dialogue it's all about the sound which we mixed at Skywalker and um, I also wanted a for the sound I wanted a composer who could identify with Owen's world. So I found a 23-year-old, brilliant, Dylan Stark, 23-year-old, remember that name, 23-year-old <laughs> electronic music genius who took Owen's self-talking, the sound of VHS tape, fast-forwarding and rewinding, all these sounds and merged it into a, a unbelievable 
soundtrack and we mixed it at Skywalker and it was just it was like it was like to heaven doing that um, but it's so it's as much as a sound sound tells the story as much as the images The film had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival in January. Owen and his family were at Sundance. They've been to other screenings. What has that experience been like for Owen? I think it's been life-changing for Owen. Owen thrives. We didn't know this, but we soon discovered Owen thrives in front of an audience. He understands, maybe from watching all these films, what it means to be to sort of perform. He has just thrived and just loves it. And I think, I don't know, I mean, just, there was one at at, um, at Full Frame, I couldn't even speak in the Q&A because I was in tears because it was so moving to see how happy he was and how happy his parents are despite everything they've been through to get to that point that there was over a thousand people cheering Owen on as he made his bows on stage. That was just amazing to me. I want to thank Roger Ross Williams for joining me. His new film, Life Animated, is playing in theaters this summer. On our next episode, I talk to Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady, the directors behind the documentaries Jesus Camp and Detropia. Their new film is Norman Lear, Just Another Version of You about the pioneering television creator behind shows like All in the Family and The Jeffersons. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, even a short one. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.